Well, I want to dig a little deeper in his love, dig a little deeper in his love. I want to dig a little deeper in the storehouse of his love, of his love. Well, Thank you for joining us on the Good News Bible Podcast. I'm Jamie Baker with Jay Dixon. We invite you to open your Bibles and study along with us as we dig into the good news of the gospel message. In the storehouse of his love. All right, Jay, well, we're going to pick up in our study of uh, attempting to answer the question, who is Jesus? We spent the last podcast talking about the fact that he was a, an actual historical figure. We talked uh, about the internal and the ev- external evidence supporting that fact. Uh, we started talking about how Jesus was at the beginning with God, that he was uh, the creator there with God, that he existed in the beginning, and how Jesus uh, equated himself to God in uh, making a parallel and a connection to what God said his name was to Moses in the Exodus, that he called himself the I Am, and Jesus said to the Pharisees that um, before Abraham was, I Am, so he equated himself to God in that regard, and that if he wasn't who he said he was, then he was either the biggest liar or the biggest fraud, or he was exactly who he said he was. And so we're going to continue uh, in this study. We're going to pick up with this episode, with this podcast episode, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus being the creator and the sustainer of the universe is where we're going to pick up with that. And I'd like to begin reading um, in Colossians 1, Colossians 1 verses 16 through 18. So if you would Go ahead and turn with me, those of you who are listening. Go ahead and turn with me to Colossians 1, 16 through 18. And uh, Paul wrote that those in Colossae, For by him, Jesus, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things uh, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and then all things he may have preeminence. And so that's a pretty powerful statement uh, that Paul makes regarding Jesus, that he is head over everything. And the things that he lists there are pretty much covering everything. So I'll let you go ahead and, and make your initial statements there. There's a lot in those verses, as you just stated, that the preeminent one, the invisible, the image of the invisible God, and uh, all things were uh, were created, as we noted in John, by him and for him, and he continues to hold all this together. So th- there's a lot uh, implied about Jesus there. As And again, that goes back to how we ended our last uh, episode talking about that there's really no gray area here for uh, who Jesus is. He uh, he either is the Son of God or he is not. And, and these things here and what we're going to talk about, I believe, in this particular episode is really going to emphasize even more uh, his deity and his power and exactly who he is. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that one of the things that was mentioned there was um, the fact that he was mentioned as being head over, over principalities, over... Um, powers and authorities, you know, which which would tell us that he has the ultimate authority, that he has the ultimate authority of uh, anyone and any uh, other being here on earth, you know, and that's something that no man can say. There have been people who have held extreme amounts of power on this earth for a block of time, 
but no one has been able to sustain that. Well, Paul's saying this in an ongoing manner, that he is, not he was, not that he will be, but he is. Just as Jesus said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, Paul's saying that he is these things. And it's kind of interesting that if we go back over to Ephesians, and, you know, a familiar passage to to a lot of Christians is the the passage about the armor of God. In Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul says there that uh, the Christian is to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so um, in if you combine those two passages and the fact that Jesus is head over all things, principalities and powers, Paul further defines where those principalities and those powers oftentimes originate, and that's with Satan. And so Jesus has authority and power even over the most um, potent spiritual adversary that we have uh, is in Satan. And so there's a tremendous amount of comfort and a tremendous amount of um, blessing to the Christian in being able to recognize that while Jesus himself was persecuted, we talk about the difficulties he faced with the Pharisees last time, and um, Jesus himself was tempted by Satan, but Jesus has authority and power over all of them. And so regardless of what we go through with these principalities, with these powers, if we wear the spiritual armor that was given to us by Jesus, then we have a victory over it. Well, it's interesting here back in Colossians, and I appreciate what you said there. Um, I did a study on Colossians several years back and just going through it and doing some historical research on what was going on here. It, it seems that that Paul was really combating a, kind of a, uh, a, a Gnostic influence that was on these people here, and, and the Gnostics' view on creation uh, at this particular point would have been that they believed— that the uh, that there wasn't really this ultimate supreme God that created the world, but rather there was this lesser God, and and He created the world poorly, and it was imperfect, and the result was it was just filled with decay and weakness and death and all of these different things, and, and certainly the impact that would have on those who had accepted Jesus as the Creator, as the Son of God, accepted what John had said in John one and what Paul is is kind of reinforcing here, made this a very, very important teaching at this particular time for the saints there in Colossae, that Jesus is is this creator. He is all of these things. And, and that's, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, there is so much in those verses that you began with there in verses 15 through, through 18 of Colossians chapter 1 that he has really given us some deep, profound insight, uh, just exactly just the power of who Jesus is and, and what power he possesses and this creative power. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that's uh, amazing is when you go back and you look at his life, he retained that power. Uh, you see examples of him um, expressing that power and that power being shown in the actions that he performed and the things that he did uh, with the miracles and the healings and the um 
things of that nature. But but it, it really seems to to shine out to me really really brightly with the the dealing with with demons and with possessions and things like that that he he dealt with because that really shows his authority over those evil elements and those those challenging elements that uh, were not a- able to to be handled by people and, and what you said you know about the the gnostics and that I, that that's such a perfect connection to what we said because there's so many people who want even today that 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 thought carries over into into today's society and people want to to hamstring him they want to hamstring god they want to say that that he's not all that he claims to be and that it's just this bible is just a book it's nothing more than you know some history that's been influenced by people and and effectively lessen god's power effectively lessen jesus's power but if we take it for what it says if we take it for what we see then we begin to understand that Jesus had that creative power in the beginning when the earth was created, and he retained it in his existence while he was here on this earth. If you look over in Mark 1 and verse 27, Mark 1, 27, I know that you're a a Mark guy, that you like Mark. Um, Mark 1 and verse 27, he says, then they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For what authority he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And so because of that, because of his ability to handle these unclean spirits, which no one else was able to, to manage, he um, became his fame, his, his knowledge became spread all throughout uh, the region there. But if you go over to ver- uh, chapter 5, there's a passage there, the first 13 verses of Mark 5. Again, we see this, and and this is one of my favorite passages because it really points out just the authority that he had. Uh, In Mark 5, beginning in 1, we're going to read the first 13 verses here. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he'd come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him and cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do to you with Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned the sea. So you see this man here in this passage who was tormented by these unclean spirits. And these unclean spirits recognized Jesus even as he approached them. He hadn't even said anything yet. He came up to them and they recognized him as Jesus, the most high God. And they recognized his authority to do to them what he willed. He recognized, they recognized his ability to torment them. Should that be his choice? 
They begged him not to do that. But this really points out the fact that Jesus had ultimate authority and he retained that creative power that he had at the very beginning throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And that extended not only over life, but it extended over the spiritual realm as well. Right. And that, again, takes me back to the opening text there when it says he is the firstborn over all creation. And uh, the idea there, that has everything to do with his authority. Because if we look in the Old Testament, we think about some of the things that were uh, privileged for the firstborn, and, and there were certain rights that the firstborn son inherited uh, in the Old Testament. There were privileges he had. His birthright was of a double portion He uh, of the estate. He had leadership over the family. He was head, head of different things. And, and that's kind of the idea of the word here, that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature, not suggesting that that he was the first created being, but this is simply emphasizing the authority that Jesus had in regards to the creation. And uh, that, that's extremely important, but I appreciate the point you made there about the recognition of Jesus's authority, because that's exactly what's being talked about here in regards to his creative power and him still retaining that power by Paul saying that all things continue to consist because of him. And, and that, that's an extremely important point for us to make sure we understand here. Yeah, and I'm glad that you use that word authority because that's exactly what it is. And Jesus commanded authority over the unclean spirits. He commanded authority over disease. He commanded authority over uh, the physical elements. In Matthew 8, and verses 23 through 27, um, you see him uh, calming the sea. And they were amazed at that when, when the sea was tempestuous and they were... Uh, fear of of dying there. His disciples were afraid of dying, and Jesus rebuked the sea, and it got calm. And then they were amazed that he had control over the physical elements. And then you see in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17, that Jesus exercised control again over disease and things like that. So, So everything that we have as a part of life, everything that exists as a part of our existence is under Jesus' purview. And it's still under Jesus' purview. It, when he uh, reascended into heaven, he retained that power. And just because it's not presented to us the way that it was then doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I think that we have to to take these eyewitness accounts and we have to give them deep consideration because if Jesus had that when he was there on earth— then there's nothing to indicate that he would have lost that or that that would not be still available uh, uh, at this point in time. I made a list here of things that would be under the heading of Jesus's his creative firstborn rights, which would be all things in heaven, all things on earth, all things visible, all things invisible, all thrones, all dominions, all principalities, all powers. It, and as you were just pointing out, it's, it's everything. I mean, there's nothing that that isn't under his authority and uh, this description of his power that he was, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, all things continue to consist because of him. So this, see, you see the, the scope of his authority, which is, is there's no end to. Yeah. And so all the things that we talked about in that first episode about accepting Jesus for who he is, all of these things point to substantiating that fact. These things all point to the fact 
that he is who he claimed he was because uh, his disciples and even people who weren't his disciples uh, at points said that nobody's ever done things like he's done. Nobody, we, we've never seen anything like this, and it's it makes it hard to deny. And as John said at the where we started with the at the beginning of the last podcast, um, with what John wrote at the end of his book, these things have been given us so that we can conclude the same thing that John concluded having been an eyewitness to Jesus. We have these eyewitness accounts of these things so that we can come to the same conclusion. John's goal was the same thing that Jesus' goal was, is for us to become believers in him so that we can partake of the blessings that he offers and so that we can ultimately be with him in heaven. So uh, these, these things may be hard for us to explain in human terms, but if you consider Jesus to be equated with the great I am, if you consider him to be uh, have the creative power that God has, if you consider that he retained that creative power while he was on earth, that he retains that creative power and, and the authority that he had over demons and disease and everything now, then there's nothing to draw us away from that fact. And it should draw us closer and closer to him so that we can conclude that Jesus is who he said he was, and ultimately find peace in that amidst a world that is full of disease, amidst a world that is full of turmoil, that's full of uh, of evil and Satan's influence. Yeah, and again there in verse 15 of Colossians 1, he says he is the image of the invisible God. And uh, he, as we kind of alluded to a little bit in our last episode, and I think we'll get more into it as we move along, is uh, he, he is the the perfect uh, pattern. He's the perfect type, the perfect representation of, of, of who God is and because he is God and, and we, we can see and we can learn so much about, about God just by seeing uh, Jesus here and the things that he, the things that he did, like you said, the way that he taught the things that he did were, were just, those things were, were different. They were unique. And uh, as we suggested last time, you had to do something with that. And, he says several times in in John's gospel, uh, if we get going back to John one eighteen, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Uh, so Jesus is this declaration of of who who the Father is, and again, it speaks about the unity and the oneness of He and the Father and His deity. Yeah, a- absolutely. And you know, we we talked before. You said we we definitely will cover that in in the future. We said when we first started this podcast, and we were talking about the kingdom, that it's all so interconnected. You know, you can't necessarily just stay here. You've got to look forward and backwards and all of that too. And um, and what you said is just is spot on. It it's just it's just um. It's just right there with, with in line with what we're talking about here. You know, Jesus, we, we started um, talking in, in the last podcast, in the last episode, and we went to John 1, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and in verse 14 we mentioned, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and beheld His glory, and the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. I keep coming back to that over and over again in this study because just that 
to try to wrap my mind around the fact that there is so much, I don't even know what the right word is, power, um, authority, command, um, magnificence in who Jesus is and in his uh, creative power and his authoritative power. Just I, I keep going back to those passages, and, and it's and it's almost hard for a finite mind, for a human mind, to grapple with that fact that Jesus is so magnificent. It just makes me think of you saying that uh, how magnificent he is, and then the depths that he allowed himself to be humiliated. Um, and, and it just ties in perfectly with what Paul talks about in Philippians, where he is essentially telling the saints at Philippi to have the humble mind of Christ, and then he, he shows us what that humble, humble mind looks like. And you take essentially the, the highest of highs, and you choose Jesus. He chose to go from the highest of highs to the very lowest of lows. Yeah, absolutely. So you think about someone that you just described, that ma- the only one, that magnificent and that amazing and wonderful and just whatever other synonyms you want to throw in there about just how great that he is and what he had and what he gave up. And he didn't just come to this earth and, and hang out for a couple hours and just go die comfortably in a bed. He, he lived a very difficult, tough life from the very beginning, from, from his birth all the way through his adult years. And when he finally began to, to teach and preach the gospel of the kingdom, there was always a thread on his life. He was being run out of town, moving from place to place. Then everything leading up to the cross and his death and the type of death. And, and to me, uh, again, we just get out, out of line here, I guess. But That's okay. <laughs> again, as we think about his death, and, and a lot of times the question is asked, why did Jesus have to die the way that he died? And why did he have to get... But that was the most the most extreme, humiliating way that he could die. And, and there is no one who could who could say that there was any better way to explain humility than what Jesus did from his lofty station to where he allowed himself to go and not just die, but the way that he died. Um, how could we question his love? How could we question his call for us to be humble? Uh, we really can't question him or say, well, you don't understand or you haven't experienced this or that or whatever the case may be because he shows us the greatest example of love. What What is the greatest way that one can show love? Lay down his life for his friends, Jesus told his disciples. Right. And what's the greatest way you could show humility? Coming from heaven to die on a Roman cross and be humiliated. Yeah, it, it doesn't, from a human standpoint, it doesn't make sense. I mean, and we talked about that with the kingdom. He He didn't fit what people were expecting in the form of a king and all the things that you just said he he was born in the most humble way possible you know in a barn laid in a animal's food trough wrapped in rags that's not a kingly birth when he lived he lived uh, a very what we consider meager existence i mean he said to his disciples when they said we'll follow you anywhere and he says you know you sure about that and the, the uh, 
Birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't live an extravagant lifestyle. He lived a life of, of uh, hardship where people, like you said, sought to kill him. And that that's not a very kingly kind of existence or what you would expect as a representation of God on this earth. And yet, um, you know, we spend a lot of time in the book of John. John covers this stuff in such detail that we need to. In John 5, in verse 18, we're told that the Jews sought all the more to kill him, Jesus, because he not only broke the Sabbath, in their opinion, but that he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus equated himself with God, and they just could not accept that. They couldn't accept that this this Galilean, who was of a very unnotable birth and had a very unnotable existence would be the representation of God on this earth. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't handle that. They couldn't connect with that as a reality. And so they decided that he had to have been a heretic and that the only right thing to do was to kill him. You know, and you see this over and over in John, uh, John 8, 59. We see... Um, I can get over there. Uh, they took up stones to throw at him because Jesus went out of the temple and going through the midst of them passed by. So again, they attempted to kill him. John 6, 22 to 68. John 4, 25 and 26. John 7, 29. They, they tried to, be, to, to kill him over and over because he continued to equate himself with God. And like I said, they just they couldn't accept that this, this, it was was the representation of God uh, that in their minds that absolutely couldn't be denying all the things that we've talked about already all of the miracles that he did all of the the things that he did um, that would have surely indicated that he was from God well, and go along with what you're saying in John ten when he's talking about the shepherd knowing his sheep it says in verse twenty five Jesus answered them I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. And the very next verse, uh, the subtitle of my Bible says, Renewed Efforts to Stone Jesus. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. And the thing, that's, uh, the thing that's interesting about that is that that same mentality carried on to those who chose to follow Jesus. What did they do to Stephen? When Stephen stood up and preached a very powerful lesson condemning them and elevating Jesus... What did they do? They stoned him. And uh, when Paul was preaching on his first missionary journey in Lystra uh, in Acts 14, they stoned him and left him for dead because of what he was preaching. And in Acts 17, they uh, assaulted Jason's house because Jason was housing these people who were out there proclaiming. So this started with Jesus, and it became a pattern that they followed over and over and over again because, again, they just couldn't accept the claims that he was who he said he was 
denying all along the evidence. Yeah, they say there in verse 33, the same text, you, you're essentially spouting blasphemy here because you being a man make yourself God. Yeah, absolutely. And he wasn't... And that, that seems to be the dividing line. They couldn't accept that he as a man was God, that he embodied both of those qualities. What were they expecting out of the Messiah? Well, they were expecting a king. They were expecting someone to, to go put Israel back on the top of the world game. And this isn't what he was doing. He was talking about all of these, all of these uh, you know, esoteric things. He was talking about, about spiritual things and, and whatnot. You know, and they're like, you, <laughs> you, you, you're definitely not the Messiah because right. if you were doing that, you'd be, you'd be going up there and conquering Rome right now. And you'd be putting us back in the place where we need to be. That's not what you're doing, so you can't be the Messiah. I laugh at Peter because he, he really wanted to believe. And he's like, "What? essentially, Jesus, why do you keep talking about dying? <laughs> and, and and why are you talking to this? He was doing so many things that just didn't add up for him. And he was always talking about he had to die. And he was talking to this Samaritan woman at the well. And he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, he's, and even his disciples, you, you can almost see them kind of speaking under their breath and talking to one another, what is he doing now? I mean, why is he doing this? Yeah, He's making this so hard on us. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's funny almost. I mean, looking at it with the full picture, right? you know, when you're going back and looking at the full picture, it almost seems comical because you see just as much as they believed in him, as much as they followed him, as much as they were committed to him, they totally didn't get it until later, right. until later on in the game. And you, you're right. You can see him going, what's going on? What's going on with him? And uh, like you said, whispering under your breath, it, right. it is. It, it is funny to look at. And, and, um, and Peter says, I, essentially, I'm not going to let you die. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Peter's> like, <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's interesting to to see the development, see mm-hmm. them see them mature and uh, in, in Acts two when that when that light bulb goes mm-hmm. off for them. I'm still open to John ten. I just glanced over and saw John eleven, but it makes me think about even after Lazarus was brought back to life. I mean, there was clearly a man that was dead for, and he was dead, dead. Jesus made sure he was dead for four days, and he's brought back to life and. So there's some clear, we talked about evidence in our last study. There's some clear, ample evidence that this man, Jesus, whoever he is, he brought this this man, Lazarus, back to life. And what did they want to do to Jesus and Lazarus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They wanted, wanted, to, wanted to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus again. Kill the poor man that just been brought back to life. Yeah, yeah. So, and the, the thing that's that Jesus says to them at different points, he says, you know, I've not done any of this in secret. I've done all of this right out in open for you to see as evidence and they chose to to reject it i mean if you go back to that that episode with uh with lazarus and that that scene there there were people from the community gathered around and they knew well and good that he was dead i mean there wasn't any denying he was dead and like you said jesus made good and sure that they couldn't say that he was that this was some kind of a fake thing he let him be dead for a good long time mm-hmm. to the point where people are going, man, you don't, you sure you want to go in there now? By now right. he's going to start, he's going to be stinking. Right. And he goes in there and raises them. And, and you're right. So the, the abject rejection that we talked about before, um, but there's a passage 
connecting again Jesus to God that is really, uh, really impressive to me. And it's uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews 1. And the Hebrew writer in the first few verses of Hebrews 1 begins that book setting this as a premise. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty impressive way to start start a book. That God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who is appointed as heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, and when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and ministers of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the, uh, is the scepter of your kingdom. And so what's amazing is that these same people who were criticizing Jesus, who were denying Jesus, mm-hmm. would not have denied the words of the prophets. They wouldn't have denied the words of the Psalms. They wouldn't have denied the words uh, of the law. They would have accepted those things and and. The Hebrew writer says that the same God who spoke through the prophets, through the psalmist, um, through the books of law, has now spoken through his son. Same God speaking to different people at different times in different ways through different means and mechanisms, but it's the same God delivering the same message. And that he has now spoken to us by his son, but the son has got some advantages that none of the others ever had. He um, has been appointed heir of all things. None of the prophets were appointed heirs of all things. None of the angels, none of nobody has, has been appointed heir of all of these things. And he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He is the exact representation of God. And... Uh, He's upheld all things by the word of his power, and by himself he purged our sins, and now he's been given the majesty on high. To me, the most potent, the most powerful verse in here is is, uh, in verse 8, Hebrews 1, uh, verse 8. And to the Son, he says, this is God speaking. This is God speaking. To the Son, he says, your throne, who? O God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God himself says that Jesus is God. And if you're not going to accept Jesus, despite the evidence, despite who he claimed to be, despite all of the things that point to the fact that he was who he claimed to be, then listen to the prophets, listen to the psalmist, listen to those who spoke about his coming, and listen to what they say. And God himself called Jesus God. 
Yeah, the testimony of the Father is the strongest testimony. And he does it here, but also what did he say in in Matthew 3, 16 and 17? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Uh, So all those things kind of add up, and I appreciate your passion in talking about that because, again, as we talked about in Colossians 1, 15, 18, there's a lot here in those verses that just really, really, really emphasize who Jesus is and his power and his oneness with the Father and the authority that he has. And I've always really been impressed with what is said in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And I've always tied that in with with Revelation chapter 1, verse number 5. Uh, where he begins to talk. John is, of course, in the introduction there of the book of Revelation. And he says, and from Jesus, and he's, who, who's this from? And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we have this this firstborn here, this this begotten from the dead, this one who is this firstborn from the dead, resurrection from the dead. And, and to me, that is so powerful. That, that was only true about Jesus. And because he was the first, that means everything to us. Since we talked about that last time, if he, if he didn't raise from the dead, then nothing else about him is true or matters or has any impact at all on us in a positive way. Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Revelation because I'd written down some notes over here, too, and I mentioned Revelation uh, chapters 4 and 5. It's funny when you <clears throat> when you start, again, studying these things and making all of these connections, uh, in Revelation 4 and 5, you get the—John uh, paints the image for us of the throne room in heaven. And when you look at the creatures that are described there— I mean, you've got you've got the throne, and you've got these magnificent creatures, powerful creatures, authoritative creatures, all around the throne, and you've got the the army of the the angels. You've got all of the uh, just the the uh, you can when you see that picture, when you paint that picture, that word picture that he paints for us, and you see it in your mind, it it's awe inspiring. It's one of those things that you would it would drop you to your knees. And yet, and yet, none of those magnificent creatures, terrifying creatures, creatures that you would be feared to, uh, afraid to approach, that you would fear in your heart. I mean, I can, I can just imagine the the trembling at seeing these things. God never called any of them son. God never called any of them, um, even anything close to that trusted they were there with him yeah sure but not son and so that really just uh is impressive to me because who ultimately is presented as son well it's a slain lamb that comes out of the midst of the throne but what even hits me in the gut even harder is the fact that jesus says that through him we become sons and I mean, that that brings tears to my eyes to think about that fact, that of all of this impressive things that we see in the throne room of heaven, of all of these 
magnificent things and the angels and the the horsemen and the these creatures that are surrounding the throne none of them are called son but jesus is called son and through him we become sons that's, that's a beautiful thought uh, i was thinking there in, in revelation 5 um as as you, you mentioned the lamb there the, the worthy lamb and and john's john's emotion because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it but then one of the elders said to me do not weep behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And again, just emphasizing the magnificence of who Jesus is and the authority. He, he was unlike anything, anyone, any spirit being, any fleshly being. Any he he was he was unique in a way that that no one could ever hope to attain in his, in his power and his authority and who he was. And, and as you said, because he was that way, it enables us just as he defeated death and, and, and sin and, and was able to, to ascend into Hades and, and come back out because he did all of these things, right? That then we can, we can become those sons. We can be fellow heirs of this inheritance that, was spoken of that you read about just a few moments ago. Yeah, uh, and that's that's so important, and it's so important. And and the thing is, is Jesus told us these things, or he told these things while he was on earth. Uh, in Matthew 11, verse 27, he, he told his disciples, all things have been delivered uh, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And so Jesus, having come from the Father is the only one who knows the Father. And all things had been given to Him. Why? Well, it's because, what did Paul say about all of us in uh, in Romans? All We've all done what? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all of us, through sin, have separated ourselves from the Father with absolutely no means of closing that gap. And yet Jesus says that all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And so, and no one knows him except me. And so Jesus has said over and over in this that he wants us to have the same relationship with God that he has with God. But in order for that gap that we created to be closed, all things had to be delivered to him in order to present it to us in a means that we could take advantage of. It's it's interesting. You, you can just kind of just flip from page to page through the Gospel of John. And you just have it all right there for you. Yeah. These things we're talking about. But here in John fourteen, he uh, just thinking about what you were just talking about. He he talks about leaving them a helper. You know, we're not going to get. It. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit in some future, future, future episodes. But <laughs> yeah, he says I'm going to leave you this this helper, this comforter. But verse eighteen really stands out. He says, "I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you." And we talked about being sons and being part of this family and being adopted into the family of God and being fellow heirs of this inheritance and uh, the, the love and the provision and the not only do all things that He created in the sense of this world can continue to consist, but our salvation, our help, uh, it continues to consist because of Him. He He continues to watch over and to be there for us and help us through these things. It's just amazing. Um, just who he is and 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 what he has accomplished and and how much he loves us. Yeah, it it certainly is, and the fact that he had and has continues to have that relationship with God, and the fact that he came 
uh, he was there in the beginning at, at the creation, that he retained that creative power, that he knows God and he's desiring to have us there with him, then what you said in John, John 7, um, in verse 29, Jesus is saying, I know him, speaking of God, I know him for I am from him, and he sent me. And that's, again, that comfort that comes to us, knowing that that's the case, that that Jesus came from God, that God sent him here, that he came and faithfully did what he was sent to do, and that we can have that relationship with God through him because of all the things that he did. It, it just brings so much peace. It brings so much um, some uh, sense to this crazy world that we live in. Well, he, he talks about in John 15 that uh, you're going to be persecuted, uh, but essentially fear not, for I've overcome the world. Well, that that didn't mean they still weren't going to face all of that hurt and pain and, and those physical things, but the fact that he had overcome the world, well, what had he done? He had, he had provided a way for them to live eternally. And I couldn't help but think about this uh, when you were talking about the throne in Hebrews chapter 1 a moment ago, this forever and thinking about the eternal kingdom we talked about in our first three episodes. And this is what Jesus has in store for us and what he had in store for us. And that this was part of the eternal purpose, the eternal plan that was set in place from before. We talked about the beginning in our last episode, before in the beginning, before time began, this was in the mind of God. And Jesus knew the plan from the very beginning and from before the beginning. And he followed it perfectly all the way to the cross and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you'd mentioned before some of Jesus' words to his disciples was, you know, you're going to suffer because of me. You're going to—he told them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me. There's no uh, thing in the Scripture that indicates that he came here to give us an easy life here. If anything, he indicated that he gave us a life to, to wrestle and struggle with the evil here, with the promise of something so much better that we can't even comprehend it beyond this. And um, again, going back to the, the Pharisees, they, they couldn't accept this. They were wanting the kingdom here. They were wanting the kingdom to be the nation of Israel, to be on top of the world. And for them to understand that it was so much deeper than that, it was so much more than them being a powerful physical earthly force that they couldn't they couldn't wrap their minds around that and yet John again and John said in uh, John 8 and uh, 23 in speaking with the Pharisees and you know in a way he's speaking to us too the same the message would be the same to us if we responded to him the way they did that you're from beneath and I'm from above You've got the perspective all wrong. You're looking at things from down here below, and I'm seeing things from up here. I'm seeing things from this very, very high elevation. I can see the whole picture, and you're limited. You are so inherently limited by the position that you're in that you can't see. You're from beneath. I'm from above. I'm looking at this from a heavenly standpoint, and you're looking at this from an earthly standpoint. And we get caught in that trap, too. We get caught in that trap saying, you know, why, 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 why? And the fact of the matter is, is we have to let go of the earthly viewpoint that we have, which is so hard to do. It's so hard to separate the physical 
from the spiritual when all you've ever known is physical, when you have, all you've ever known is a physical existence. Mm-hmm. And, but Jesus is that perfect, uh, because he began spiritual and became physical and has returned to spiritual, he understands both elements of it. And that's the thing that we have to try to get our, our focus toward is moving to where he is and to let go of where we are in order to experience that with him. How comforting is it to know that we have this faithful high priest, that this this one, this mediator who was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin, who who took on flesh and, and can understand in a way that sometimes we don't even understand what we're going through and, and knowing what we need and knowing the help that we need. And you're right, it's so difficult for us to to sometimes think spiritually. And, and if we, such as the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, if you do, if you read those Beatitudes with a fleshly mindset, they make no sense at all. How are you blessed for being persecuted? How are you blessed for being poor? How are you... They make no sense at all, but when you look at that Sermon on the Mount and you look at all of God's Word, but you look at those types of things through the, the lens of, of spiritual sight, then it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what it is supposed to be. Uh, when Jesus' disciples, or when he told his disciples, essentially, you're, they're going to kill you, but fear not. <laughs> yeah, that makes no sense from a fleshly standpoint. But from a spiritual standpoint, you can understand why there can be a lack of fear in death because it was never intended for us to be here forever. Correct? It, right. it, this is not the, this is part of the plan, but the plan is eternal. And we see that all throughout Scripture from the very beginning all the way into the book of Revelation. Yeah, and I think that yeah, too many of us, uh, I know that in the past uh, have not taken this perspective, is that everything from the beginning of the Scriptures to the end, points to that fact. It points to Jesus. And, and I failed to see that connection for a lot of years. But the Old Testament and all of the things that we, we saw in that lead us to Jesus, and they should be leading us to this conclusion. And you know we're about out of time here, so I figured this is a, a really good spot for us to conclude this section or this uh, episode. In John... Uh, John 16, John 16, beginning in verse 25. And I'm going to read from 25 down to the end of the uh, chapter there. And just listen to the words of Jesus, because this really is the grand scheme. It really is the big picture. Jesus had been speaking of his death and his resurrection. And he said in verse 25, beginning, These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father." The disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we're sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. 
And Jesus answered and said, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, the hour has come, that you'll be scattered, each one or each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that makes perfect sense, giving his creative power giving the fact that he retains that creative power, that he should have authority over the world that he created. And in that, he says that that's where you find your peace. You're going to have problems. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to even face periods of doubt and lack of faith. Be of good cheer. Be Find some peace because I've overcome the world. And, and I just can't think of anything... Um, better to keep in the forefront of my mind as I go through this world encountering problem after problem after problem is to find some peace because no Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. Amen. That's a good good stopping point for us. All right, brother. Well, we will pick up next time and we'll continue in this study. Um, and we will begin talking uh, the next time uh, more about Jesus and who he is, and we will uh, begin death. talking about his death. Yeah. So, Sounds good. can we end with a prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this opportunity today to talk about your word, and we're thankful for this avenue that you've blessed us with with this podcast. We pray that we will always give you the glory and honor for all things. Pray, Father, that you'll help us to see Jesus and help us to accept him for who he is and his greatness. And, and we thank you so much for the blessing of being able to be called your children. We're thankful for the sacrifice that he made that enables us to be sons of you. Father, we thank you for all your blessings in life. And we pray that you'll be with us throughout our day, be with those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good News Bible Podcast. We welcome your questions and comments. Please direct them to gnbp at protonmail.com. That's gnbp at p-r-o-t-o-n-m-a-i-l dot com. Yeah.